you're listening to the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Hello and welcome back. I'm Eugene. And I'm Ben. And tonight we're continuing our ongoing special Doctor Who season uh, until Doctor Who runs out of episodes this year. And uh, tonight we will be reviewing Vampires in Venice by Toby uh, Whithouse, I think. So we might as well just get right into it. So, what do you think of the episode, Ben? Uh, filler. Totally, totally a filler. It, it, it really didn't do anything to advance the overall arc, um, except for the little bit of dialogue about a crack and people running away from the silence in the crack. Uh, I thought the episode as a whole, as far as the main story goes, the whole whole bit with the vampires, supposed vampires, it really didn't do much for me. Uh, there was no no element that made me interested in ter- uh, in terms of the drama or or the people, and I found the presence of Rory, Amy's boyfriend slash fiance, to be a complete waste of time for me. And that's it. Well, I, I must say, I, I was thinking the episode reminded me um, very much of the Peter Davison era of Doctor Who, uh, which was basically filler between Tom Baker and Colin Baker. Um, and that's funny you should say that, because I I was flashing back to actually some Tom Baker episodes that were just filler for a particular season. For, uh, one that came to mind was The Horns of Nyman. I mean, an episode that, uh, at least for me, not one of my favorites, you know, and I don't want to digress too far, but it, it took me to that kind of era hmm. where you had this you had this entire series and there might have been one or two episodes that just really didn't live up to everything else. And that was exactly what I got out of this one. Well, I wouldn't quite go so far as to call Horns of Nyman execrable, but it's pretty darn close. I, I was thinking more... You know, filler, because my main complaint about, and I'm picking on Peter Davison now, not him as a doctor, but but that period of time, is that I just thought all those stories were kind of nothing. You know, they just really didn't have a whole lot to them. There were a couple there, but there was nothing hugely wrong with this story, but, but at the same time, there was really nothing that made me even want to watch it a second time. The kids didn't ask to watch it a second time. I did. Uh, you know, to go back and and take a few notes, um, it it did fail my entertainment test per se because I began to question things that were going wrong while I was watching the episode. Though so they they lost me, I couldn't suspend my disbelief, um, and so once that happens, then my mind is is working a different way when I'm watching the episode. I'm I'm looking for problems instead of enjoying the story well you know it was it couldn't exactly fault it and say that there was any huge huge plot holes in it but well nothing was answered we saw at the end of the last episode the previous one where the doctor is realizing that there's something very significant about amy and her wedding day and it's not just the fact that she kissed him he realized that there was something very significant regarding her and and the wedding day coming up, so what does he do? He goes back to, the, goes to the bachelor party. I I would admit I thought the 
the bit popping out of the cake, while it was predictable, I did kind of chuckle a little bit with it. But nothing really came of that. Nothing that we saw. So he takes Rory, puts him into the TARDIS along with along with Amy. Although I did I did find uh, Rory's reaction to the TARDIS amusing. He didn't seem to be all that phased by it. I I thought that was kind of again I thought I thought that was amusing. But as far as where this story is going regarding her, regarding Amy and her wedding, it did nothing. It didn't go anywhere. Now, maybe they were looking at, well, that's, maybe that's a story element which needs to come along at a later point in time. And I, I'm guessing that's going to be the case. But to bring Rory in at this stage felt totally unnecessary. And, and to me, actually, I think served as something of a distraction. Well, I kind of wonder if perhaps the doctor has come to the conclusion that this, this and rightly or wrongly, that this problem in time has something to do with her choice of getting married or not. And that perhaps he's thinking that by her not getting married could bring about the problem. And so he's trying to make sure that things go off the way that perhaps he's perceiving that they should go off. But I don't know. It is kind of unclear. You're, you're right. When he walks out of there, he says, we've got to get you sorted out. But then they're not really trying to sort anything out or figure out the mystery uh, of what's going on. They're just, you know, better go get Rory and let's uh, let's, go let's have an adventure. Have an adventure. Yeah, kind of thing. And, and I, don't, uh, I don't want to go on record ever as saying that I even think story arcs are necessary. I think they're grossly overused in TV shows. I think they've been overused in Doctor Who. I don't think it's necessary to have some sort of overarching story every year. It just, you know, there's no need for it. The Doctor's very nature um, of all shows. You know, if you had a show like, oh, I'll pick on Babylon 5. Babylon 5, which covers a tale of a war, that's got a very nice, linear, overarching story that you can have smaller personal adventures along the way. And that makes sense, because a war is a big, overarching story. But in the case of Doctor Who, where he's bouncing around time and space from here and there, an overarching story has to somehow be able to overarch his time traveling. And so that kind of makes it difficult to do in the first place. I mean, it just it, it's an illogical uh, situation. If the Time Lords were still around, then that would make sense, because their time would be running parallel with a Doctor, something of that nature. But, you know, as the universe as a whole, he's kind of an outsider. So anything they do with an overarching story must be following him, by definition. And uh, I just think it's unnecessary. So I don't mind that the story had nothing to do with the story arc. In fact, I thought it was you know, unnecessary that it had anything at all to do with it when they mentioned the silence and the cracks. They could have just had aliens there for any other nefarious reason. But they didn't. So they had to, they had to bring up the silence and they had to make the place silent at the end which was hokey. No, I agree with uh, everything you just said. Uh, the, th- the thing that I keep coming back to though is why bring Rory into this I, I think it 
it, I like the idea of having the occasional non-arc related episodes. I see no problem with that. And I, I think this one should have had nothing to do with the, the overall story arc whatsoever. And just maybe just not maybe it's not even bring in Rory. I, I really have a huge problem with him, especially since we know that he is somehow key to this. I mean, all you got to do is go back to the 11th hour and he's got that. He's the one with the, the name badge, right? Right. With a weird date. Right. So clearly there's something very unusual surrounding him as well. Or they just botched it on the continuity tag, but that just well, seems I so find unlikely. that one. I, I'm sorry, I find that very hard to believe. That's 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 so huge that I can't accept that one as purely accidental. I have to believe that that was a deliberate attempt on the Grand Moff's part. So going from that, I have to assume that there's something very significant about Rory and and Amy together. So to, like I said earlier, bringing Rory into this story and then not really going anywhere. I mean, if you want to have a non-arc story, fine, have one. But don't bring in what could be a potentially arc-related character and then throw him into what is 80 to 90% non-arc-related whatsoever. It felt like a complete waste of him. Uh, I'll be honest. I, I don't like the character. I can't imagine what Amy sees in him. Uh, he was the only guy that was willing to dress up and play the raggedy doctor when she was a kid. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably it. So he he really strikes me as just uh, useless as, as of this point. Well, totally he'll improve. You know, remember, I hate to say it, but remember Mickey from hero from zero to hero. You know, they, they did improve him with time. Oh, um, barely. No, he was less of a sniveling coward by the end and was actually uh, somewhat heroic. And I, I, they probably will do the same with, with Rory. I think that's what they're, they're kind of pointing out. The Doctor, in a way, brings out the best in people. Makes them rise up to the moral challenges that they are confronted with and, and be better than themselves. Even Adric gave his life so that we could be less tortured by his presence. <laughs> anyway. Well, I can't argue with that. So I thought a couple thoughts about the episode I had. I, you know, because like I said, once, once the spell is broken for me, then I start thinking about what's wrong with the script. Or that may be the wrong, what's wrong with the idea? And there were a couple things that, that really bugged me about this. The first one is I kind of feel like the script was written, which is obviously true, this is going to sound like a stupid statement, that the script was written before they actually did the special effects, and that they didn't read the script when they did the special effects, because never would I call those things fish. Crawdads, lobsters, shrimp, even maybe crayfish, but I would never... Those are not fish. No. <laughs> they're, they're crawdads, and... Yeah. Okay, why does everybody keep calling them... Oh, they're fish. They're fish. They're not fish. Did you not see the final... You know, couldn't you go back and dub shrimp or something in there? It just It's odd that they were... It makes more sense because they have legs and they can crawl around, but... Uh... Well, to, to uh, bring up a, an old sore point for you... 
uh, Silurians. Mm. Yes, yes, wrong era of time. <laughs> totally wrong. Or is that not the sore point? Have I got another one? I don't know. I'll have to leave that one to you. Yeah, well, that one's a big one, yeah. But that's that's paleontology nerd going full speed ahead there. That's just totally wrong. And that's, I dislike the episode of Primeval where they went back to the Silurian area. They just had that completely wrong. And I mean, that was the pinnacle of... of scientifically accurate TV shows. Oh, but we digress. <laughs> anyway, so here's one that bugs me. The low-level perception filter has become the new reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, hasn't it? It has. I noticed that, too. I mean, here is this, for one, here's this TARDIS. That, that no just, one notices. And no one pays attention to it. And I thought, well, this certainly runs contrary to everything that we've seen in past shows. You, you want to know what's going else? on here? The, not just the TARDIS materializing, and it clearly materialized. We didn't see it, but we heard it. Right there in the square with all those people, and the old lady with a goat walks by, doesn't pay any attention. But there was something even more unlikely to get to be ignored. The clothing? Amy's skirt. The clothing, yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, I noticed that too. Leggings on of some kind, but I mean that would be, you know, burner as a witch in 1580 kind of stuff. But no one batted an eye. And this is a very recent thing because I seem to remember episodes uh, back when the sh- when the show came came back on, where people were commenting on, uh, I I, w- I believe it was Rose's wardrobe. Well, in, uh, when they went to Wales, uh, yes, she wore something. Period. She intentionally wore something. Period. Wales in the in the past, Dickensian. But Dickens commented on the doctor's clothes, called him a navvy, mm. and uh, and then there was some comments about the Union Jack when she was in World War Two, right? The T-shirt and whatnot. Yeah, people noticed the clothes, but I mean, what what Amy was wearing would would have oh, that would have stood out. That yeah. would have stood out. It, it, it was it, – it, it's scandalous. It worked for me, but, <laughs> you know, it was – it would not work for 1580 Venice. No. So one of the problems or advantages when they lose me on the story and they've, they've, they've broken the spell and I can't suspend my disbelief anymore is that then I can start looking up on the internet. And I – my first thing was, is there any precedence to say – that UV light has any kind of effect whatsoever on crayfish or lobsters or whatnot. And I could find I could find nothing at all. They are apparently like to go into shadows if given the choice, but but there's nothing specific about UV light or anything like that. And obviously no terrestrial animal explodes under sunlight. The other thing that, that gets me is of course Amy uses her mirror to shine just a little pocket mirror. To shine light on the one uh, crayfish that that was following them, but here they are. They're they're all they're all walking around under parasols and, a, and a perception umbrellas. Problem. If yeah. right, well, yeah, and if, so if bright light is going to cause them to explode like that. Then even being under shade, like with, with some of those umbrellas, is it's not going to cause them. Or, or, or give them any kind of protection whatsoever. So I saw that as a gross inconsistency. It, it seemed awful. And, and then, of course, when Rory's fighting him and he throws the blanket around him, funny, he's not shaped like a crayfish underneath the thing. He's shaped like a man. Yeah. Yeah, which, 
you know, the, the whole the whole thing with a perception filter was just was just silly. So the other thing is, there's no mention of there's no proper continuity here. We know from State of Decay that the Time Lords fought a, a ancient war with the real vampires, the great right. vampires. So the Doctor knows vampires exist, and I, the, his attitude would have been different, I think, if he had even remotely suspected that they were really vampires at any point along the way. You know, why wouldn't he think they were vampires? First off, it's weird that they pretend to be vampires, because that's basically what they're doing. And second off, it's weird that, really, if you think about their plan to convert girls into crawdad crawdad wives, well, okay, maybe. And then you get that whole canal full of 10,000 of them, and no one in Venice has noticed, you know, when they go swimming and they all get eaten. Um, of course, if the canals in Venice were anything like the River Thames in 1580, uh, you know, it was nothing but sewage. I, I have no right. idea. I don't know enough about the history of Venice to, to put anything like that. But why did they need to sink Venice? Why couldn't they just go live in the water? They didn't... Did they want the buildings? And it sounded like they were bringing in a, a tsunami. And if that were the case, then the buildings wouldn't be there anymore. Well, the whole thing felt very, very far-fetched. I, I, I could better see it if they were trying to maybe terraform the entire planet. But to just think Venice kind of left me scratching my head. I do want to go back to something that you said about um, the great vampires, though. Uh, I, I'm just kind of like remembering the story in my head. And if I recall correctly, in the, the war that the Time Lords had with the great vampires, they were all uh, chased away. And they apparently all made their way in, into e space. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too techy or too, just or the too, one. yeah. Just, just, was just, the was last just the of one. Them escaped, yeah. The others okay, were hunted because, down and destroyed. So then the question becomes: When in Time Lord history did that all happen? Maybe uh, this story here, Vampires in Venice, happens at a time that the Doctor already knows that there shouldn't be any. Oh yeah, well, we're, we're clearly that was ancient history even before the Doctor was was a little boy because they told him the stories when he was a lad. But the point is, is that, you know, he subsequently has encountered a few that survived or that were being converted by the great vampire. You know, the the possibility should at least pop into his mind that maybe another great vampire existed and was converting people, but he doesn't really seem to ever believe that they're really vampires. He, He seems to believe there's something else. Uh, or at least that's the impression I got. And and the other thing which I'll mention, um, just because this is clearly inspired by Hammer horror films and you know all the '60s vampire schools and and films and whatnot, is that they did they do such a beautiful job at the BBC of recreating, uh, which if you if you paid attention to the Doctor Who Confidential, they went to Croatia to shoot this. I mean, they did a wonderful job recreating Venice and, and the period piece, and I mean, the BBC always does a great job on that. But if they were trying to recreate Hammer Horror Films, I'm afraid that those girls they got just did not have the physical attributes that would be typically fitting of vampire brides. I'm when the doctor said, ooh, fish have never been so buxom, well, not compared to real Hammer films. 
by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I I will take your word for it. Uh, That's not exactly something that I'm looking for, for obvious reasons. Uh, But so that kind of did pass by me. Uh, So I I will defer to to your uh, keen eye on that topic. I'm a little bothered that the sonic screwdriver can now heal wounds. That's a new one. Was never exactly clear as to what I mean, yes, I understand the purpose of them drawing the blood out and then putting the blood back in in an effort to change these girls genetically. Or at least I understand the explanation. I don't understand the the biology behind it, but I understand the explanation. But I'm still not quite sure why they bite them on the neck. Is that just... Are, are they actually drinking all the fluids out? I didn't wasn't quite sure that that was how it was done. I kind of got the feeling that that's what they were doing. At least they were drink. They maybe not completely drain them overnight, but drink enough of their blood uh, at, per each session. And th- it's so that was I, just I, their feeding habit. And then putting yeah. the blood back in through little baggies was the actual grandmaster plan of, of right. converting them into into brides. Which made no sense. Why didn't they just chuck the girls out into the water and start breeding right away? But Again, um, it didn't make a whole lot of sense at, at, at any level. I got nothing else on this one. On this one, yeah, this one was. I mean, really it it really left me pretty flat. I I, I had very little uh, uh, di- entertainment out of this one. And in my case, as I as I watch a show, and if it's not really delivering on either the story development or the character development, if it fails on both of those counts, then my mind just starts to wander. It's like, you know, oh, look at that shiny object over there kind of thing. And this episode just did not deliver. But didn't didn't you say last week that this was Toby's first episode for Doctor Who? No, he did School Reunion. Which is surprisingly enjoyable. But, you know, a lot of similarities. Well, I, yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, the school reunion had Sarah Jane Smith in it, and and that made it good. But the the plot with the uh, oh, let's see here. Can't remember New Who monsters. Let's see, Krillitane, um, and the tainted French fry oil um, was not really that well thought out. You know, it was it was kind of a nothing episode if it hadn't had Sarah Jane in it. I would dog. agree. So, kind of, kind of similar. Speaking of character development, that reminds me. Did the Doctor's behavior in this episode seem totally different from all the other episodes to you? He did have a certain... Dorky. A, well, I kind of... I'm thinking back to the scene that he has with the Grand, the grand Madam... Mm-hmm. Uh, the mistress of of this this school that apparently was so popular, and he had this this really odd attitude that I could not quite label. That felt very strange. It felt totally different than anything we had seen previously. So it it did strike me as a rather it, it struck me as out of place. I, I I was thinking that the that basically every scene. I mean, if you popping out of the cake, he has this sort of. It's even more awkward than he's been, uh, socially and conversationally, 
and just almost more comedic. Well, yeah, I it kind of makes me wonder who I, I I've heard many times that whenever they've tried to bring in a new actor to play the doctor that sometimes they try to bring in elements from previous incarnations. And there was talk about him trying to be, you know, like a blend of Tom Baker, Patrick Troughton kind of thing. Um so being a little bit whimsical, I could see, but popping out of cakes and then to find out that he's been that how many wedding cakes did they pop out of just to make in order to find the right one? It did seem I mean I I thought from purely slapstick or point of view, yeah, it made me kind of laugh because it it was just so dumb. It, you know, very very uh, lowbrow humor. But yeah, at the same time, however, it did seem somewhat actually it seemed a lot out of character for the doctor to do something like that as opposed to just opening the door and come barging in and, and making a huge announcement. Yeah, I have my interpretation of his portrayal, not counting this episode, okay, but in prior episodes, I do see a lot of Patrick Troughton mannerisms and it's as if Patrick Troughton's expressing himself with Peter Davison's kind of maybe it's youthfulness. Yeah, maybe it's the age. Maybe it's it's something about the tone of the voice or something. But those two doctors, I see glimmers of from time to time, where I just go, "Oh, he's doing a Troughton. Oh, he's doing a Davison." I don't see. I haven't seen any of the other doctors, which is which is not to say that you know he's not trying to incorporate elements of them but there's but the physical mannerisms don't seem to come around. But this one, I thought he was doing Jerry Lewis. You know, there were just, he was even more awkward with his movements. He was even more sort of whimsy conversation, not exactly to himself, but I I I just couldn't get it, but it it just kept popping up and grabbing me scene after scene after scene that he would do it. But not the scene you were talking about where he was with her. Then he was kind of in this intense intense mode. It was very different from the rest of the show. But again, it was unlike anything I'd seen him do before. And he just had this, there was an, there was an almost arrogant swagger to it which seemed too extreme from the confidence that he has expressed since 11th hour. Yeah. Well, I um, I don't know what order this was shot in. I know that uh, Flesh and Stone and uh, Time of Angels were the first episode shot. So that typically when they bring in a new doctor, they, a lot of times they'll shoot a, a middle episode so that they can be right in character so that they can get ready to do the tricky regeneration scene when they figured out what they're going to be like later on. But I don't know where this one was shot, whether this was an early one where he was still settling in, or whether this was just uh, just you know different material on the page, and so he played it a different way. I really don't know. I I, 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 I haven't uh, heard one way or the other. Um, I, don't, I, I don't get to see the confidentials, so I have no idea 
if anything was said during well, there. Confidential. Oh, that, that's such a shame because the other thing about the confidential, the confidential actually, I would have been mad. If I were a British citizen and I'd watched the Doctor Who confidential, I would have been upset uh, at the money they'd spent on that confidential uh, basically under a false premise because the confidential spent a lot of time. They Basically, they went to Venice. The writer and Matt Smith went to Venice quote-unquote, to learn more about the great plague of the 16th century in mm-hmm. Venice. And so they spent a lot of time talking to a, a, a Venetian noble, descendant of noblemen, about his history and the family history and the fi- history of the plague and, and how they did things during the plague, the, during that period of time in Venice. And even when I'm watching it, I'm going, well, you guys keep referring to the script and you keep referring to how you shot it in Croatia, and so clearly you're not doing research. You're just here killing some time in Venice to make an episode of Doctor Who Confidential about a topic that was so glossed over the plague and unused as to be irrelevant. I mean, yeah. You know, if this guy did one squat of research on the plagues in Venice, and then that supposedly went into the script, I I did that much research because I knew there were plagues. That was enough. It's like, you know, there aren't plagues now. I heard the plagues were gone. Oh no, I'm not out there, sir. They're stacking them like cordwood. Oh, interesting. And it leads him to the villain. But I mean, one you know one little scene with one little bit of dialogue about the plague. But it, it is a uh, it is a uh, was an excellent Doctor Who confidential in this in as much as they showed how they turned landlocked Croatian city into Venice of the 16th century, and all the troubles and how they faked the gondolas and and you know anybody has any interest in how they make movies and and the illusions that they use on television shows like the rippling water and the uh, you know, the, the gondola that they were gondoling was basically a, a piece of plywood lying on train tracks. Mm. And, uh, you know, they're just <laughs> real close shots. And, and it, the illusion is, is perfect. And uh, my my great-grandfather, who, this personal story, my great-grandfather was a cowboy, a real cowboy. He ran away from home when he was 12 to be a cowboy. Changed his name. We have some questions about where he came from because of that. but And... He, as he grew up, and then they started making movies, he was about that era, um, he loved westerns because he was a cowboy. And then he went down and saw them make a, a movie once, and he never went to another movie in his life because he was so disillusioned with... The, with Hollywood. With Hollywood. That's right. He wasn't in Hollywood. I think it was somewhere out in Oklahoma. But it, it's still it's still Hollywood creating the old Western image, which is completely, and I find completely it, false. History. I find it fascinating. I mean, the, the making the behind-the-scenes stuff is, is fascinating in that respect to me because of, of the, the ingenuity that goes into it. And um, and there's no doubt about it that the, that the Doctor Who production team are, are good. I mean, I, I can't fault the episodes on a technical level. No, uh, from a purely visual standpoint, I thought it was brilliantly well done. Uh, the production was just top-notch, as have all the all the Doctor Who episodes been since the show came back. Uh, it's I, part of me sometimes yearns for the 
the cheap plywood sets that were put together with band-aids and spit. But at the same time, there's something really neat to be said about seeing such a really glossy looking uh, episode in terms of its production values. Well, perhaps he can travel into a parallel universe that's made of plywood uh, in the, at some point in the future as a uh, uh, an interesting plot device. Or not. Grand Moff, you can have that one. We don't want it. <laughs> well, next week, we're going to be still hanging out with Doctor Who. And uh, let's see, next week's episode is uh, Amy's Choice. And it looks like uh, she and Rory and the Doctor are back in back in rural England uh, for some exciting alternate reality story. Yes, and this one looks like – I get the feeling that in, if, if you want to have an overall story arc, I believe this, this, this episode that is coming up should have been the one that uh, happens immediately from the moment the doctor picks up Rory. My own personal opinion. Well, we'll find out. And uh, as I think we mentioned last week, if you want to send us feedback, uh, you can reach us at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. And we're up and running on Twitter at uh, our username is Fusion Patrol, all one word. And so until next week, I'm Ben. That's He's Ben. And <laughs> I'm Eugene. <laughs> we'll see you later. Or listen to you later. Or you'll listen to us later. Good night. Night. Fusion Patrol is produced by Lone Locust Productions. You can contact us at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Our theme music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf. <laughs>